This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Elegance as an Axis of Game Design. Trilon and Perisphere. Aldebaran versus Beetlejuice. And the Battle of Blair Mountain. Robin, what's better than dinosaurs? Hmm, I don't think there is anything better than dinosaurs. How about dinosaurs plus 5e? Sold! Well, get ready, because the 5e prehistoric campaign setting, Plain Gia, is on Kickstarter now from Atlas Games. Wait, didn't they make Niambi and Northern Crown too? Yes, for third edition, plus Penumbra, so you know it's going to be excellent. Tell me more. Plangea is the prehistoric fantasy campaign setting for 5e, offering endless adventures in a vast, brutal world. Discover a world of raw action, primordial horror, and mystic awe. It has everything you love about 5e, but reimagined for a primal, prehistoric world. Plus dinosaurs. Live on Kickstarter until October 7th. Search for Plangea. That's plain as an airplane, then G-E-A. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the gaming hut where we know that the best dice are ten-siders, the best miniatures are pewter, the best Doritos <laughs> are nacho cheese, and the best Peter Frampton is, as always, coming alive. Because today in the gaming hut, we're talking about principles. We're talking about truths. And Robin... What have you done to me? Set us up, shall you? Right. So, Ken, the other week over on the Twitters, you, clearly trapped and bored in an airport, started providing actual content on Twitter (laughs) (laughs) in response to someone's question prompt, and you began to list the axes of game design and how uh, they are underserved and underdiscussed. And several things occurred to me when you did this. First of all, we should get you to do it in a uh, area where you are uh, receive compensation for, therefore <laughs> not working for free on Twitter. And secondly, allow you to, to speak at greater length because, uh, hey, we have a discussion forum. So if something is underdiscussed, that means we haven't discussed it yet. It's true. And so you listed a number of axes of uh, uh, or principles of game design. And I thought we'd create a little series where we discuss each of them in depth. But before we do that, I guess we have to get a little bit of definition before the definition. So what constitutes an axis of uh, game design in, in your view? How does it what does something uh, qualify for that? And, and what does an axis do for us? as game designers and game players. An axis is, in my mind, a thing that is present to a larger or lesser degree in a game design. And that thing is something that, you know, either the strength of design or the strength of play leans on. So it's not elves. Elves are not an axis. Elves are part of a setting. And it's not, you know, on-off switches like, is there a random resolution system? And what is that random resolution system? Those are relative, you know, those are, I don't want to say epiphenomenal, but they're different questions than the, is this game elegant? And that is, for example, I think the first axis we're talking about. And a game can be, you know, very, very elegant or very, very, you know, whatever the opposite of elegant is, ornate. And neither of those are necessarily bad game design, but you will just as if you're a fan of any of the design arts, architecture, for example, have your preferences. And so maybe you are a uh, Le Corbusier role-playing game aficionado and you like everything to be stripped down to the bare minimum. And maybe you are a more a Rococo game designer and you think Louis Sullivan wasn't even half trying and you want your games larded up with all manner of fun subsystems and curlicues. And that is... You know, and again, neither of them are bad. There is just sort of an aesthetic preference, but you should be aware of the axis when you're doing the design rather than just do it, you know, at random or because it worked that way in Vampire once and you think that's cool. Right. So that's that's basically the the difference here, right? So so we're looking at a series of sliders. Mm -hmm. uh, And so in this case, your slider can move toward elegance. And I guess one of our challenges in this little chat about this first 
a principle of game design is indeed what is the opposite of elegance. Inelegance would seem to be cheating. Mm -hmm. And I think we want to go maybe find another positive value that's uh, for some people better or more interesting than elegance. So before we define its opposite, Ken, what is elegance in game design? Elegance in game design is the degree to which a relatively few mechanics or a relatively few rules support most of the action. So, for example, in a game like, say, Dungeons and Dragons, where you roll a die 20, and if you get high, that's good, and if you get low, that's bad, and you do that for a lot of different things in D20, that makes it a relatively elegant game. There's one basic, you know, resolution system. It applies to most things. However, there are other games, for example, Call of Cthulhu, where you roll percentile dice, and you do that more often to solve more problems in the game. And only very rarely do you do anything except roll percentile dice and look at the number. And that therefore would make Call of Cthulhu a more elegant game than Dungeons and Dragons. Also Dungeons and Dragons has a lot of subsystems in it that would move away from elegance. Call of Cthulhu has a few subsystems in it that would move it away from elegance. And so at the very tail end, you might be looking at something like on the edge or over the edge. Jonathan tweets, super minimalist warp system, which has, you know, practically uh, in, in its original in incarnation had, uh, you know, barely a mechanic, much less, you know, a bunch of them. I think the new one has like two or three different things to ask yourself while playing. Right. And, and then there's Everway, his, his later yeah. design that is even more austere in that way. Right. And so my first reaction is what I initially thought elegance would be, would be sort of a, an aesthetic creaminess, something that is fun to handle, something that gives a pleasure to interact with as an abstract rule. But what I'm hearing is something that I would more characterize as, you know, parsimony or economy uh, versus ornateness. Mm -hmm. And so the many systems of, say, original AD&D, which had all sorts of, had a different subsystem for everything. It's like, psionics, time to roll out the percentile dice. And then you get these very stripped down systems that you've been talking about. And so as we're, we've already suggested, these are spectrums and they're poles between different values that we're not telling you one is good and the other is bad, but they have different attractions. Mm -hmm. And so obviously an elegant or parsimonious design, one of the advantages of that is that it is simple to learn, mm -hmm. easy to implement in play. Uh, when you're trying to figure out how you do something, you don't have to flip to the uh, section on grappling, for example, in order to find <laughs> a whole different subsystem and then figure that out on the go. And I, I guess we can start to see the applicability of this set of axes in that different versions of D&D have gone in different directions over the years. And so some of them have been more elegant than others. And uh, I think it's safe to say, however, that game designers in the uh, second and third wave and beyond have valued elegance or parsimony more than the original gang who were looking to do other things and less concerned about making everything have sort of a, a unity of, of style or a unity of mechanics. Right. And uh, just to touch on your notion of how the game feels in play, because that is by and large subjective and every individual player is going to respond, you know, this game feels, as you said, creamy and smooth. Some players will look at, say, Dogs in the Vineyard and say, this game is super creamy and smooth. Other players will, you know, bounce off the changing die sizes and they'll say, well, that, you know, that's a discontinuity to me. And I think that depending on what you value about Dogs in the Vineyard, you could argue either that it's a creamy play experience or a janky play experience because it's going to be the player's individual aesthetic and response. And that, while, you know, you want to know that, right, is not necessarily a design principle because a design principle in theory should be something that you could point to and say, this is true regardless of who's playing it, right? So how do you, so I guess what you're saying is that creamy versus janky is not going to be a principle that we look at in another segment because it is entirely subjective. Yeah. And again, you can argue that this game is going to feel creamy for most players of it. And sometimes that's because most players don't really care about any of the minutia and they wind up free forming it into creaminess. And some players will just, you know, 
be hit by jankiness with any system that is not the first system they learned. And, you know, even players, you know, of say Pathfinder may go to any other system and say, this is not, you know, fitting my mental model. There is jankiness, right? So that's, that's why I wouldn't necessarily, you know, uh, point to those as design principles so much as a sort of aesthetic things that you could say in, in right. the way that you could say, you know, this movie made me feel warm and loved. Well, good. And we hope that the director wanted that, but that's not a thing you'd say about a quality of the film. Right. So you have set yourself up then by saying that this is a elegance is objectively measurable to answer the question, how do we objectively measure elegance? And the answer is by examining how much of the game is governed by how few mechanics. And obviously you can say, for example, nice black agents has basically the one mechanic roll, you know, and spend, but you could say, well, Knights Black Agents has a lot of sub cases in which you have to memorize a bunch of different spends. And then I, I think that you could have a discussion. How many memorized sub cases do you tack onto a system? Because you can imagine certainly a version of, of Knights Black Agents that was literally just, you know, ultra basic gumshoe, none of the special cases. And, you know, the vampire building system, which is, you know, not at the table mechanic, and it would be a more, you know, a, a easier to remember, easier to use, but I would say, I would argue less applicable and resilient. And that gets us to another, you know, set of maybe axes. Right. So I, I think that, you know, it, my judgment for an elegance of a game is how many problems does one mechanic solve? for the people in play, usually the GM, but always keep in mind the players as well. So as is my want, I'm finding myself zeroing in on sort of the nomenclature issue. And I think that uh, possibly unity is a clearer way to say elegance, right? If if there's a a unity of design, you're going back constantly to the same uh, simple system. Or in theory, the same complex system. It's just that, you know, <laughs> you're, right. it's always the same system. Right. Always the same system. So that when you encounter a new thing that you need to simulate or emulate, the answer is always through the unity of this system. How do I find a way to get the D100 roles in basic role playing or the uh, D20 role in D&D or the uh, spend and D6 of the general abilities in gumshoe, how do I get those things to solve that problem? So mm-hmm. rather than thinking, okay, grappling, this is a whole new realm of mystery and imagination. So we're going to work out how grappling works. And we're going to go backward from there into what mechanic we use to solve it. A system that has high unity says, well, is this D and D it's got to be a D 20 role, mm-hmm. which later versions of D and D absolutely did. And so, although we're saying that these are just objective things that don't have a valence to them that one is good and the other is bad. I think we are both kind of leaning as design has toward unity being better. So I guess the opposite of unity would be a variety in that or sort of tailor-made subsystems. So is there a game that you would point to that you think is a brilliant design that in fact ignores unity in favor of having a a new, beautifully hand-tooled subsystem for every problem it encounters? I would say that there is a there is a degree to which, and we talked about the the question of special cases, and even if they all flow back to the same mechanical tree, they are special cases and they create situations. I would say that even though all GURPS roles, pretty much, except for the diplomacy roles, weirdly enough, are the same roll three dice and a cloud of dust. GURPS is an example of a system that has so many, it's like a a banyan tree in that there's a bunch of different trunks all holding up the foliage, but they're all basically made of banyan wood. I would say that GURPS is something that moves towards diversity or towards ornament, which is my opposite of elegance and is still remarkably playable. But a lot of that is because the way that you play GURPS is you pick you know, an elegant stream out of the, the many ornamented possibilities and you play that. And, uh, that is ironically for a universal system. There is no one GURPS, (laughs) right? Yeah. There's a, a bunch of different ones. And I feel like if you look at some of the systems that are slightly more involved in terms of table space, right? So fourth edition Dungeons and Dragons, which adds basically miniatures combat or even fate, which has, 
a bunch of different modifiers to always keep track of and often involve space in terms of zones in which the modifiers are true or not true. I think that those systems, although fate, again, can obviously be played super elegantly, fate as it is normally developed is a more ornamental system than you would imagine it to be. Uh, fudge, for example, is is super elegant because it's literally just the mechanic. And then Stefan Sullivan <laughs> wipes his hands of it and says, there you go, guys, I've built you a Maserati, put it together. And, and that's one of the things about a, a really elegant system is that the temptation, especially with a designer like myself who uh, admires and loves GURPS and had a sneaking love of old A&D&D, likes to take a, a gumshoe, for example, and find a lot of special cases that you can then, you know, rotate the same elegant mechanic just a little different and plug it into. And then so it's that tendency towards ornament that I consider sort of the sweet spot for my design. I think you're a little farther back on the trunk of the tree than I am. And, and so I think that uh, there's a lot of things that, you know, they can begin elegant and then rapidly become ornamented as they're, you know, thought about. Another example is Blades in the Dark, which is a great game, very cool, does a lot of things, but it has several different sorts of mechanics that you need to keep track of. And then it also, you know, has lookup tables you have to memorize, and it has at least two pieces of tech that will baffle and confuse anyone who hasn't played Blades in the Dark for a long time. One of them being there are no stats for bad guys, and the other one being the shot clock or the clock mechanism. And both of those take a, a job of work to handle in your head. So I would I would maybe point to Blades in the Dark as the best, most current ornamented system. And I think that although John Harper is is very capable of elegance and design, I think that he looked at what he wanted to do with Blades and said, I, I need to do a bunch of different things. There need to be a bunch of different approaches into this to do exactly the sort of feel. So there's a lot of, you know, it's, it's almost like a cantilevered game system that there's a bunch of supporting buttresses that all come in and the game happens at the top of them, if you will. Right. Now you're suggesting that this is objectively measurable, but there is still a level of preference that goes on top of that. that oh, some absolutely. Yeah. Lean toward the elegant, or sometimes I would say even the austere. So for example, the choice to only use a D6 mm -hmm. is an austere choice. Uh, knowing that many uh, role-playing gamers love all of their polyhedrals and want to yes. roll all of their polyhedrals as often as possible. Every every time we tell someone at the at the booth that Gumshoe uses a die six, you can just see a little tear. <laughs> right. So there's there's a level of preference, and I think that even you know as our brains work in different ways, there are people who are attracted to the ornate. There are people who are attracted to the austere, and that is something that is visible uh, both. If people are uh, in a position to choose the decor of the home they stay in, or in this case, the uh, role-playing game that they're playing, there are people who love curlicues and added bits, and they like rules. They like to interact with rules. And I think that is another thing that is the another part of why you move the slider back and forth with this, is there are people who find rules aesthetically pleasurable unto themselves and wish to interact with them and wish to have a variety in the rules that they interact with, just as we like variety in the food that we eat. And then there are other people who are like, well, I just want a rules that I can learn and then we'll get out of the way so we can do other stuff and, and focus on the content. And so there's a, I think, a level of artifice that you're dealing with. Are you dealing with the form and that is more toward the or, or ornate or variegated side? Or are you more interested in, in dealing with the content and that pulls you more toward the elegant or unified side. Um, well, I think I now realize that I've successfully uh, come up with something that we can talk about in little 15-minute chunks, uh, one at a time. So uh, next week, we'll continue this series. Uh, we'll go through your list, and we'll see at the end of that if there are any others that either I want to add or that I think other people will want to hear us address. But until then, it's time for us to uh, look over the horizon, and there's something really interesting on the other side of this here uh, plane, I think we better head on over. From the dread docks of Dilath Lean to the poet-burning furnaces of Zar. 
you are having the weirdest of dreams. A dream of an otherworldly deal on Dreamhounds of Paris. The Trail of Cthulhu campaign that mixes Lovecraft's realm of oniric fantasy. With the dangerous art of the Surrealist movement. Pitting Dali, Cocteau, and Magritte against the mythos just got cheaper. Dreamhounds of Paris by Ken. And Robin. And Steve Dempsey. Is 25% off at the Pelgrane store, in print with PDF or PDF only. Add its inspirational fiction companion, The Book of Ants, and get 25% off that too. Only until September 30th. With the voucher code hashtag AntDream at the Pelgrane Press online store. The smell of blueprints, the squidgy, squidgy squeak of blotter pens, and the uh, unfurling of plans tell us we've once more stepped into the architecture hut, this time at the behest of beloved backer Nicola Wilson who asks, what is the occult significance of the Trilon and Parasphere? And what was the 1939 World's Fair trying to do with them? And so, Ken, the, the Trilon and Parasphere are basically a big old globe sitting in a ring with a big old spike going way up into the air. And uh, this was, uh, in 1939, somebody's idea of utopia. Yeah, because the 1939 World's Fair... It was initially meant to be the 150th anniversary of George Washington's inauguration. And someone said, well, that was surely the greatest thing that ever happened in the world. But do we think that the world is truly grateful? Maybe we should do something else as our theme for the World's Fair, rather than just make them come and worship George Washington, as they rightly should have. So they came up with the idea of the world of tomorrow as their thesis that we're it's about, you know, this beautiful world that is just on the other side here in 1939. <laughs> and, and, you know, talk about your, your bold predictions it, living in 1939 and thinking, let's do a, a whole fair about how great everything's going to be in the future. Well, let's not skip to the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no spoilers. We'll, we'll pick that thread up in a moment. Right. So the World's Fair is designed mostly by a pair of architects named Wallace Harrison and Jacques-André Foulou. Wallace Harrison is a New York architect. He went to the École des Beaux-Arts in 1919-1920, came back to New York, began a, a thriving career. Uh, Jacques-André Foulou was French, moved to America in 1904, went back and forth, did not, in fact, go to the Beaux-Arts, which is wild. He went to an engineering school in France, but he became a great architect anyway. Right. Someone has to learn how to actually make the buildings. Yes. Just throw out the sketches. That, that's, that's called engineers, Robin. And they're not the queen of arts. They're the queen of arts' helper. Helper monkeys. Anyway, uh, Falou designs the Tribune Tower in Chicago uh, and then designs the news building, the Daily News Building in New York, as if to say, I didn't mean all that gothic stuff. Honestly, I'm part of the international style. Don't hate me. And it was a then, client. The client made me go gothic. <laughs> right. Ah, it was McCormick. Don't yell. Um, they become partners in 1934 when uh, the Rockefeller family basically says, we're going to be building a lot of stuff in New York. We need some tame architects. And so they basically became the core of the Rockefeller architectural, I don't want to say trust, but they're, they were on retainer. They were like the family architects for the retainer. So they built 30 Rock. They built uh, Rockefeller Gardens. They built, I think, the Museum of Modern Art in New York is, is theirs, not the Guggenheim, but the older one. And the UN building, uh, which was built on Rockefeller land, is uh, Wallace Harrison and, to a lesser extent, uh, Falou design because Falou fell off one of the Rockefeller towers in 1945 and died. So that is the Harrison and Falou. They put together the the whole World's Fair and the centerpiece of it is the Trilon and Parasphere. And the Trilon, as you suggest, is a big triangular daggery looking thing. It sticks up 610 feet high. I don't believe you could go into the Trilon. I think you just looked at the Trilon. The Parasphere, on the other hand, 18 stories high and be being a sphere that also makes it 18 stories across. So there's a lot of space in it and you do go into it and you go around on a little ramp uh, the longest escalator in the world at the time. And you see the democracy city diorama, which is the uh, city of the future laid out by a guy named Henry Dreyfus, who is an industrial designer who designed all manner of things like, you know, streamlined trains and staplers and all kinds of stuff. A very, very important uh, industrial designer. And that was the sort of the centerpiece, if you will, of the fair, the, the, the focus, 
if you want to begin to move towards Nicola Wilson's question of the affairs uh, energies. And obviously you have a giant spike and a sphere that's certainly got to be something. And indeed it did got to be something. Right. And, and the images of these have been, have appeared uh, in pop culture over the years uh, it shows up in uh, Michael Shabin's The Adventures of Cavalier and Clary. It's uh, at least in one continuity is the Justice Society of America headquarters. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, you know, a sort of signpost of hopeful 30s uh, futurism. It was in, for example, the movie Tomorrowland as an example of the tomorrowness of everything. Right. And even at the time, it uh, wound up in pop culture. Uh, most notably, uh, it is mentioned in the lyrics of Lydia the Tattooed Lady, a song by Yip Harburg. Uh, which Grotzer Marx fans uh, know from his uh, rendition of it. The name perisphere means all-enclosing sphere. The name trilon just means triangular pylon. Yeah. But I think it's in all-enclosing sphere that we begin to uh, move toward the uh, occult uh, significance of this. The Rockefellers, of course, we've mentioned them a lot, but also New York City is uh, FDR territory. And I think the fact that it's 1939, that you've got a, a sphere that encloses all and particularly encloses uh, the idea of democracy, uh, I think indicates that this is a, a battery of some sort to collect energy from uh, fairgoers, to collect hope energy and uh, use it for a, a purpose and perhaps a purpose that needs to have a giant bayonet <laughs> attached to it as well. So clearly 39 FDR knows that uh, the U S is going to uh, wind up in the war. Uh, but there's lots of uh, Americans who do not think that's going to happen. They don't want it to happen. And he, however, is supporting Britain in particular with the Lend-Lease program where they're sending war materials over to them. And, and clearly, Ken, is this has to be an occult Lend-Lease program where they're collecting positive energy to send over uh, so that uh, Winston Churchill can use it against the Nazi threat. Right. Possibly, although it has been carefully scrubbed from the record, it is uh, a magical working carried out by Golden Dawn member and real estate magnate Samuel Untermeyer, who ran his own hip pocket secret service hunting down Nazi agents from the waterfront and uh, was no doubt up to other magical uh, workings that we're not privy to. He was more of a Bronx guy, but I'm sure, you know, he would have uh, taken the cross town, gone down to Queens if he'd been needed uh, for the Trilon Perisphere working. When I looked at the Trilon on Perisphere, the thing that popped to my head was the regalia of the Holy Roman Empire, because the sphere is obviously the Globus Cruciger, the orb in the Holy Roman regalia that's surmounted by a cross. In this case, it's not surmounted by a cross because it is a secular symbol, but the orb indicates power over the whole earth. And this goes all the way back. I think Julius Caesar is holding orbs in, in various pictures. And of course, we all know about the, the various fun orbs that have uh, popped up in iconography and news media down to the present day. But this orb is, as you suggest, a, a battery. It is meant to gather. It's symbolically gathering together the whole earth. And then what's at the center of it? A sphere representing the whole earth with democracy and not just regular democracy, but an urbanized democracy at its very center. Uh, next to that, then, would be the Spear of Destiny, represented by the Trilon. And the, the Spear, of course, is what the royal authority rested in. It was symbolically the Spear of Odin, Gungnir. It's the Spear that holds sacred wisdom. It's the Spear that oaths are taken on. It's the Spear the laws of the world are carved into. And so, when you have a Spearhead, as the Trilon very clearly is, and an orb, I'm thinking... This is an attempt to make the United States the new Holy Roman Empire with its center in Queens, of all places. Perfectly fine choice. Yeah, but a again, very monarchical choice. A very monarchical choice, yes. Because if you have, you know, the orb and the spear of the king, and what's welcoming it except the queen? And there's also maybe a little Gnostic quality, because, of course, the fair was built on an old garbage heap. 
you know, the Rockefellers owned it, but they didn't, weren't doing anything with it. They planed it off, built the world's fair there. And so there is a, a degree to which it is the, you know, Sophia found in, um, the brothel, uh, quality where true knowledge, true power comes out of the rejected thing, the stone the builders rejected, as we say in Freemasonry. So the notion that the whole world's fair, this whole magical working happens in this rejected land and is then brought to flourishing by the power of the spear and the power of the orb, maybe a little Arthurian vibe going on there as well. A little Parsifal, if you know what I mean. Right. And of course, by having their own sphere of destiny, uh, FDR and the Rockefellers are saying to uh, Adolf and the SS that our spear is much better than yours. It's 610 feet high. Yours is right. max, you know, probably six. And ours is the future. Yours is the past. And uh, we're going to use this spear to to, uh, to spear you with and the uh, Parasphere to gain uh, the power to do that. As we mentioned in our earlier segment on the Tatarian Empire theory, some people these days are shocked that amazing bits of architecture would be uh, thrown up, not meant at all to last, meant for ornament, and then torn down again. Uh, but of course, it makes perfect sense that this would be taken away because it was needed as a weapon. And whether that went to the Manhattan Project, which, you know, working in all the boroughs, or uh, some other mystic uh, center of uh, power accumulation, or indeed was, as I suggested earlier, shipped over to the UK to, uh, you know, shield them when the Battle of Britain came. I think that part of it is really up to the player characters to discover. Yeah, the um, the degree to which, obviously, there are, you know, Nazi magical saboteurs running around. I think you have to count on that, that the Ananerba's got their, their boys there trying to distress the ritual, the un- unhand the working, maybe even hijack the magical energy. I'm sure that whatever the Nazi German pavilion was at the World's Fair, it's a locus of evil. So feel free to Google that, kids, um, ideally on your work computers. Why not? <laughs> and uh, I, I think that there's, um, you can have all manner of fun there. And as you mentioned, it's connected to the Justice Society. So it could even be a working that brings all of the superheroes into existence. I mean, Superman is from 38, Batman is from 39, Wonder Woman is from 1940. Other lesser superheroes are also born around then. So maybe that's the that's the working that, um, uh, that drew the superheroes into existence. And it's why so many of them hang out in New York when there are better cities merely 1,500 miles away. Also explains why Batman uh, never gets shot. Yeah. He's uh, secretly magic. Uh, well, now that we've revealed all of these important true facts... It's time for us to pause for a moment to gather ourselves and make up or reveal more facts in an upcoming segment. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Stop this podcast from going supernova by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Carl McKee. Darren Dumay. Robert Dean. Chris Lydon. And Patrick Joint. The snap of the Jacob's Ladder, the whir of the Van de Graaff generator, and the bubbling of the strange reagents over the Bunsen burners welcome us into the land of fun with science, where we're going to put all that stuff away because we're doing astronomy. So it's just telescopes and it's not even telescopes yeah, but they don't now. bubble or spark or anything no. you got to bring in the other stuff to bubble and spark before you just 
look through a bunch of dumb old uh, telescopes and squint your eye. And, and in fact, in this case, it's all computer readouts from a satellite telescope. We're we're not even squinting. We just sit there and, you Science know. Science does not have as much bubbling or sparking as it used to have. As it used to. Well, back in those back in the days, Robin, science was science with an exclamation point. But anyway, despite the punctuation of it, beloved Patreon backer Peter McAvaney has noticed that Beetlejuice, the star, not the ghost, has begun to brighten again and is not going to explode. Hurrah! But the real question is, what was happening with Aldebaran that required this distraction? And Robin... I didn't even know Beetlejuice was sick, to uh, borrow the old joke. Yes, apparently it was getting substantially uh, dimmer for a while. Beetlejuice is a giant, giant red star. So if there's a problem, Superman's not going to be able to solve it. Right. So uh, what it turns out is that their uh, suns have these things called convection cells, which are basically a boring way to say plasma blobs. Why don't you just say plasma blobs, sun studying astronomers? And so these bubble up to the surface of the sun. And so our sun gets comparatively small convection blobs uh, compared to this uh, much more gigantic sun. And it could be that just these bubbling up to the surface for a while can seem to dim the brightness of the star. And this is one of those stars that can be seen with the naked eye. And in fact, it is so bright that they have to use special instruments to be able to observe it properly. And there's a group called, and I love this, this is clearly, once we get to the scenario part, these guys are clearly RPCs, the American Association of Variable Star Observers. They may be variable in their own lives, but also the stars that they observe are variable. And I guess Betelgeuse is pretty uh, variable because it has all these giant plasma blobs come up and down, and uh, it can change the, the brightness of its sun quite a bit. If you want to step Back from that a bit and imagine planets affected by the brightness of a sun whose brightness changes, that that could have enormous impacts on a uh, a society, even when we leave aside the fact that, uh, as we'll get to, uh, stars aren't science at all, they're magic. Mm-hmm. But Ken, what did what did you uh, think of first when you saw this story? Well, I mean, I, I, I dug into it, obviously. The dimming was, it always happens. It's called a semi-regular variable star. That's why the American Association of Variable Star Observers observes Betelgeuse in the first place. And the dimming, however, in 2019 was much more dramatic than, reg- than regularly observed dimming. And so it had lost two thirds of its luminosity between October 2019 and middle of February 2020. And I think everyone had other stuff they were thinking about around then. And uh, it made a total recovery, just like hopefully many people did in March and was back to its full brightness by about April 5th. But it was so dangerously dim that everyone was thinking, oh, is, is Betelgeuse going to go supernova and if it does is that good right because it's going to go supernova any minute now meaning any time in the next hundred thousand years yeah and they decided that it was one of these uh, enormous convection cells as you say that sort of if you imagine a bubble coming up to the surface of a pond and popping and flinging mud and algae everywhere in this case the plasma blob came to the surface and popped and shot ejecta out into space and there was so much ejecta from that pop that when it cooled into dust it actually dimmed the star and changed its visual shape so it, it it's normally just a big puffy red ball and then when you looked at it in super dim it almost looked like a curve like a, a crescent moon only creepier and weirder um, and when i'm thinking about Betelgeuse, obviously i'm thinking about the fact that it's the shoulder of orion it is often thought of as a imposition into the shoulder. There's, in fact, a classicist who I love because he is not held back by, you know, pointless old evidence when he theorizes things named Stephen Wilkes. It's, it's not classical classicism. No. And he says, Betelgeuse is the ivory shoulder of Pelops, which was replaced after the gods ate that shoulder. Tantalus, of course, King Tantalus, served his son Pelops to the gods. The gods dug in and then said, this tastes kind of Pelopsy. And he said, you noticed. And they said, oh, you're going to Tartarus so hard for this. Yes. And Orion himself, yeah. like a, a lot of the Olympian gods, is uh, is not a great guy either. No, so there's, he's a problem child. Olympus, the, the male side of Olympus is full of sex offenders. And he's, he's he, was, he, was, he was Artemis's bad boy boyfriend. And all the other gods are like, don't hang out with Orion. It's terrible. And uh, she's like, oh, but only he gets me. I can change him. 
And in, indeed she could because uh, she was hocused by the other gods into shooting him in the head. <laughs> oh, what fun. Yeah, so when, when you're an god and you say, I can change, and it's like, yeah, I can change him into a deer. I can change him into an owl. There's, there's a number change, of options, actually. Change him into a corpse. Yeah, I, I can't make him more emotionally present, but I can turn him into a skink. <laughs> and then pull his tail off. And then I, I figured that you would be all over the fact that it is the traditional emblem of the Haiki clan, the enemies of the Genji clan who, of course, loved Rigel, the white star at the foot of Orion. And so there is a uh, a contest within Orion between Betelgeuse and Rigel, and then our buddy Aldebaran, of course, over in Taurus, which is to say right next to Orion, is suddenly brighter than Betelgeuse uh, between November of 2019 and the end of March 2020. Right. And that is where I believe... We turn it back over to you and the magic land of Carcosa. Right. Because, of course, Peter is hinting at the fact that Aldebaran is, is one of the stars that is important uh, to uh, the mythos of the uh, uh, king in yellow. And as always uh, with these stories, there's more hint than explanation, as if we are falling uh, through a crack in reality and we have to put together the pieces to make our own reality and perhaps there's some sort of reality shift going on here. So Aldebaran is in Taurus, uh, the bull, and it looks like he did a little bit of goring of Betelgeuse in order to, as uh, Peter suggests, to uh, create a diversion. We know that from the repair of reputations that at least the insane mastermind, Mr. Wild, uh, has a copy of the Imperial Dynasty that goes all the way to uh, the Castain family that he's uh, manipulating. But it suggests that the Carcosa somehow uh, is the ancestor, all of these things, the way that gods are uh, sometimes ancestors of uh, humans in mythology. And in this case, the stars themselves seem to be gods in some way. And so that Carcosa seems to have birthed the Hyades, uh, Hastor, which is another star in uh, the Chambers version, and Aldebaran. And we know that Hastor and Aldebaran are connected by lakes. So this has the suggestion that not only can they eventually give birth to a lineage of people who are present on Earth, but that they communicate with one another. And if you've read the Infernal Play and uh, begin to uh, have your uh, internal reality, if not also the external reality to begin to shift on you, you will see a procession of these uh, stars float across your inner eye. So you see our Deboron and the Hyades and another star called Alar and Haster. And so we know that there are uh, people on Earth, therefore, who are descended from stars. Uh, we know that the stars can communicate with each other. And uh, we know, as we're trying to uh, sort of uh, uh, slide around, that uh, one, we did have a major this is normal now, normalcy going out the window reality shift uh, right about the time that Taurus gored Orion in the shoulder and uh, dimmed the light of Betelgeuse for a while. So clearly this was yet another working that, you know, hate to say it has us all wearing masks. So yes, Peter, I think you're absolutely uh, on to uh, something. And the next question is, are there people in this world, uh, people who experience visions of these stars, or uh, as I suggested, are even uh, descended from those stars who can communicate back the other way? Is this an action that is merely happening out in the cosmos, that is a, a, a battle between stars? Or are there Orions and Tauruses among us who are taking part in this uh, great cosmic reflection of a an, an attempt to uh, shift our reality? And so are there going to be monstrous rampagers uh, coming next? Uh, I think it seems more and more uh, credible every day. And uh, perhaps uh, as a, a character in the uh, Yellow King, this is normal now sequence. Uh, you may, in fact, have as your uh, peculiar thing the uh, fact that you think that you are descended from a star, or you see the movements of the star. That you something about you changed when Betelgeuse briefly dimmed, and uh, it's back to normal. But uh, maybe you're not. Or you can imagine some other person. Maybe you. Maybe the mysterious variable star observer who you were suspicious of for other reasons. Who maybe I don't know fell into a mysterious coma in October 2019 and completely passed out in November and then didn't awaken until April and that they are connected somehow to Betelgeuse. And that's your, your point of approach is knowledge that they are somehow tied to Betelgeuse. Obviously you can also pull in Lovecraft's 
uh, Beyond the Wall of Sleep, where Algol is the bad guy, and there's a different star, Nova Persei, that possesses Joe Slater and is uh, talking to our fairly stiff uh, narrator. But you have this notion of stars engaging in occult warfare in, in the world, also in Lovecraft, so you can pull it that way if you're running Trail of Cthulhu. Uh, Betelgeuse, as I mentioned, or as I believe we both mentioned, dims all the time, so you can find a good dimming in the 30s sometime and pop it right in there. I do want to mention that when I was looking up Betelgeuse, uh, there's a couple of things that struck me as odd. One, I couldn't find a Greek name for it. It's a super obvious star. You'd think they'd have a name for it. They didn't seem to. Two, the Arabic name for Betelgeuse began with the Arabic words, hand of Orion. And if you look at Orion, it's not on his hand, it's on his shoulder. And that's why people have a sort of a, a backwards etymology that says, oh, they mean armpit. And it's like, no, if you look at it, they meant hand. And then sometime in the Renaissance, they changed it to house of Orion, which made slightly less sense, but is at least not graphically wrong. And now we all understand it's the shoulder. So my question is, what if Betelgeuse used to be in the old reality or maybe in the new reality to come, you know, down around towards Orion's, you know, hips, not up on his shoulder. And up on his shoulder was the original star Pelops that was eaten by the gods and vanished. And they had to move Betelgeuse up there to, to hold it in place. Right. And if there's stars that are being eaten and stars that are being moved around, that suggests that there's entire uh, realities, entire planets that are being uh, destroyed as yep. uh, the king and his daughters perhaps even play some sort of uh, board game uh, where they're manipulating the power of stars and uh, uh, they're noted game players and they may be uh, thinking of, uh, you know, what happens if uh, Earth has been very interesting to them over the years. They've uh, uh, like our theater, for example, and we are fun to manipulate and uh, and play with. But uh, the real question, I guess, is it's be quite frightening if one of them decides to uh, upend the board and sulk off and, and go home and what happens uh, to us then. So I think we'd all better pony up for our annual membership in the American Association of Variable Star Observers because I'm sure there's some other weirdness coming out in the heavens that we got to pay uh, close attention to. And uh, who knows what it might be a harbinger of. So having placed that doubt in everyone's minds, I think it's time for us to flee to a place where there are no stars overhead or at least another segment. Fear is a fractal. And your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality. Shaking things, reordering them and making them run like wax. Doors open to endless Victorian hallways. Where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork limbs, cold metal seeking the warmth of blood and bone. But don't despair. There is hope. A king waits for us. And Impossible Landscapes, the first campaign for Delta Green, the role-playing game, waits for you. In PDF now, hardback in May. Twice as big a book as Arc Dream planned. Those naive fools. Hailed as one of the best RPG campaigns ever made. And a masterpiece of surreal horror. While your mind is broken and battered by Impossible Landscapes. Also sees the bonus new release. Delta Green Static Protocol. Which reorganizes the intricate timeline that precedes the main action of impossible landscapes in entries that an ambitious handler can sprinkle in front of players to lure them deeper and deeper into research god help them that's impossible landscapes and its companion static protocol both from the freshly shattered collective psyches of arc dream publishing the whirring of chronotons and the clacking of time gears tell us that we're once more in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the conveyance that Ken's superiors at Time Incorporated use him to send him back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this time around, uh, they are working on a new uh, project. They wonder what the ramifications might be and also uh, the difficulties of execution in preventing shots from being fired at the Battle of Blair Mountain. The Battle of Blair Mountain is at one of a series of exchanges of gunfire in the 20s that together make up the coal wars. And this shooting war between labor and management is 
such an incredible story. It's strange that it has resonated so little into people's awareness of American history. It just seems why to it's f- almost as though uh, big corporations decide what gets movies and books made. Right. And also, of course, the various Hollywood screenwriters who were uh, afraid of being rounded up for their communist or leftist leadings um, didn't want to make it that obvious by making a bunch of movies about the, the Cold Wars. So that leaves this as a subject, Ken, that you're going to have to provide, I think, most listeners um, a big old bunch of background on. Okay. In the 1880s and 1890s, the process begins of unionizing the coal fields in America. And this goes, I think it's safe to say, in fits and starts. By 1919, by the uh, uh, end of World War One, John L. Lewis, the head of the United Mine Workers, great Republican hero that he is, is deciding that he is going to basically unionize the coal mines in southern West Virginia that are uh, yeah those union loving Republicans that's what we had that was yeah. that was back when uh, he was looking askance at Woodrow Wilson for trying to stop unionization oh look at that Woodrow Wilson just popping his little <laughs> head in here again I, I think Beetlejuice might have dimmed at some point and flipped some polarities but continue who can say anyway my man John Lewis is out there getting it done sending organizers into Mingo County West Virginia and the the, the conditions of course are dire. The miners are all living in company housing so that if you get fired for union organizing, you also get thrown out of your house in West Virginia. This is no joke. I assume it being a mountain and probably cold outside. Anyway, it's not good to be thrown out of your house. There's also the grinding uh, labor, the ever threatening lung cancer and black lung. And of course, the fact that you're paid not an awful lot of money to, to go down and, and dig the coal. Right. So a dangerous, dangerous job. Yes. So uh, Lewis has basically been engaging in a series of strategic strikes thwarted by Woodrow Wilson, as mentioned before, and is attempting now to sort of do an end run and increase union presence in non-union coal country. The theory being that if he can unionize most of the coal, then he can do a general strike and people can't just say, well, too bad those guys are striking. We've got all this lovely non-union coal that we've dug out. So uh, the coal companies in Mingo hire detectives, and I, I guess you'd wor- use that word with big air quotes, uh, private security is what it actually is, from the Baldwin Feltz Agency. And uh, these guys, these you know junior varsity Pinkertons, show up in Matewan in Mingo County, and they attempt to serve a warrant on police chief of Matewan, Sid Hatfield, and police chief Hatfield is a pro-union guy, and he works to keep union guys out of jail if he can. He works to, you know, soothe out uh, tensions in the city. A total good guy, and obviously, so Baldwin Feltz wants him out of the way so that their corrupt local sheriffs and elected position uh, can run the county. They serve the warrant on Hatfield. Hatfield says, let's show this warrant to the mayor, Mayor Tresterman, who probably did not want to be involved, but was, and he says, so mayor, is this a legitimate warrant? And the mayor says, this is not a legitimate warrant, at which point someone pulls a gun. I assume a lot of people pull a gun. There is a big gunfight that breaks out and it kills a bunch of the Baldwin Feltz detectives, including a detective named Feltz, which I assume makes it personal with the detective agency. And so Sid Hatfield becomes a big hero to the miners because look, he's, he's shot down these uh, security goons and he then uh, is acquitted of murder. He pleads self-defense, which he can obviously prove because it was again, also one assumes a lot of coal miners on the jury. There is a continuing ruction outbreaks and battles between union and non-union miners and enforcers until martial law is declared by governor Morgan of West Virginia in 1921 in May. Hatfield is then he's sort of in love with his own celebrity. He goes around, he uh, appears at a lot of rallies. He shakes hands with a bunch of radicals. He is then charged with arson for setting a coal tip on fire. Probably a trumped up charge, but we'll never know because when he gets to the courthouse in Welch, West Virginia, outside his county, he is gunned down on the courtroom steps, assassinated by Baldwin Feltz detectives on August 1st. And that, of course, is their revenge for the death of their fellows in the gunfight in Matewan. There's a big UMW rally as uh, their uh, hero cop is killed. They're mad at that. They march to Charleston. Union organizers present a petition to Governor Morgan, who rejects it out of hand. And so the miners, rather than dispersing, decide they will march to Mingo 
and forcibly organize the town. And uh, this causes a uh, concern amongst the various coal barons and their sheriffs. Mostly pro-company or company tool sheriff of Logan County, a guy named Don Chafin, begins to assemble a private army of Baldwin Feltz detectives, scabs, guys who, if the union uh, takes over, will never work in the coal mine again, area businessmen who don't want a bunch of coal miners marching through their town. Basically, they all assemble under the rubric of the Logan Defenders. Some of them are professional gun wielders in the sense that they're uh, sheriff's deputies and people like that. Uh, Some of them are just, you know, area folk. It's about 2,000 people, and they fortify Blair Mountain, which is right across the line that you have to go on to go from Charleston to Mingo. And then he hunkers in and waits. Meanwhile, the main UMW organizers have skipped to Ohio because they don't want any part of this. But local president named Bill Blizzard, Big Bill Blizzard, takes up the march, leads the men in a, in the campaign. They liberate a train and fill it full of miners and, and run that down the railroad. It's, it's a big deal. And so there's somewhere between seven and 10,000 miners marching on Blair Mountain against this uh, little uh, army of 2,000 men. Now, the little army, remember, is dug in on a mountainside, and they have machine guns. They have the machine guns from the state armory. And so they are uh, ready, more than ready, one would argue, for a bunch of coal miners. President Harding in uh, on the 26th, says, stop that. I'm going to send in the troops. And the marchers say, well, we don't want to fight troops. And so they're beginning to dissipate. But Chafin then basically doesn't want to waste this army that he's put together and paid for. That would be basically blowing a hole in his budget for nothing. So he sends guys out to Sharples, West Virginia, where there are some UMW organizers meeting up and guns them down and kills, uh, according to legend, their families when they're trying to escape. That probably didn't happen, but it certainly is what the miners heard uh, when the word gets back after the gunfight or the gun down, really, in Sharples. So the miners are super mad, and they charge up the side of, of uh, Blair Mountain, and they begin to attack. The, the first bunch of, of skirmishes begins on the 29th. On the 30th, they begin to charge up the sides of the mountain, and they discover, oh, right, machine guns. At one point, they liberate their own Gatling gun from somewhere and use that against the machine guns. So we have exchanges of fully automatic weapons fire on American soil, I think for the first time ever in American history. And then Chafin has also got a bunch of guys flying around in biplanes, dropping tear gas bombs and pipe bombs on the miners. This is like a full on, highly localized civil war in America that almost nobody knows about now. It's its own little World War One slash Civil War happening in America. Harding then sends in the troops. They show up on September 2nd. The miners, many of whom are World War One veterans, say, well, we're not fighting the government. We're fighting Don Chafin and the coal companies. And so they disperse. The trouble with being the, the good guy's side that disperses is that's the side that then gets arrested by everybody. So 985 of the miners get arrested. Many of them serve jail time. Many of them are acquitted by, again, coal miner juries. The last one gets out, I think, in 1925. So it's not a, you know, a a Eugene Debs situation where the guy's in prison forever, but it's still, you know, basically an injustice. Although on the one hand, they did bear arms against the sheriff, whatever. You can certainly say, though, that the uh, victory at Blair Mountain that Chafin won was decisive in the short term in that the UMW basically lost all of its membership in Mingo County and then began to lose its membership lots of other places because the coal companies basically said, well, if we just hire scabs and private security, there's nothing the UMW can do about it. And that's what happened. So through the course of the 1920s, UMW membership drops way, way down by some numberings to under a thousand members. John Lewis basically has bankrupted the union paying for the trials and defenses of all these miners at Blair Mountain. So there isn't, you know, enough money in the strike fund to keep strikes economically sound. By the end of the 1920s, the only unionized state in coal mining is Illinois. All the other states are are back to non-union positions. But John Lewis turns down an opportunity to become Secretary of Labor under Hoover, which I feel, and he feels, was maybe an error in the sense that he could have probably got a good long-term contract between the miners and the coal companies secured by the federal government. And if he'd taken that job, he doesn't take it because he doesn't want to be in, you know, 
in Washington. He wants to be down there, you know, getting it done in the fields. And of course, he doesn't get it done until the New Deal comes in and there's suddenly laws about hiring a bunch of private security and killing strikers. So that, that's history as we have it. That's history as we have Somewhat it. Somewhat dispiriting. Yes. Much like history as we have it. Yes. But this is the point of the time machine. Let's go and uh, to see if you can make history a little better. So can you stop the bloodshed and uh, what knock-on effects does it have if you do? Well, there's two directions that you can go to stop the bloodshed. The, the best one would be to somehow convince Governor Morgan to, if not accept the petition, accept the petition as a grounds for negotiation, that the state would then arbitrate between the coal companies and the coal miners. You get a situation that, while not good, would be better than it was, and you might wind up with sort of ameliorative measures that don't leave the union any stronger, but leave the coal miners in a slightly better position. The trouble with that is it probably takes as much money as the coal companies donated to Governor Morgan to do it, and I don't know that the time-incorporated budget extends to that. So, put a pin in that. Another possibility further back is to get John Lewis in a room somewhere and over a couple of drinks suggest, you know, if you bought yourself a governor of West Virginia, this would be much easier. And again, he's a guy who can, there's no reason that he could not have done with the miners, what Jimmy Hoffa did with the truckers in the sense of turning them into a political machine in New Jersey and other places. He could have done that. And I I think that maybe making that suggestion might've been something Hoffa or not Hoffa, Lewis was, you know, very familiar with electoral politics. He originally wanted to run for mayor, decided he'd rather be a a union guy. But I think that you could maybe, you know, farther upstream, say, take the money, use some of the union money to organize political machines in, say, Charleston and Wheeling. And then, oh, look at that. The guy who's governor knows that if he steps out of line, he doesn't get a second term. And maybe that's the way to do it. The third way, the sort of closest to the bone way, is to mislead Don Chafin's murderers when they go to Sharples to stir up trouble. You could either warn the UMW guys to get out of Sharples that the the bulls are coming, or you just mislead them in the West Virginia hills and they go off somewhere else and never make it to Sharples, or they fall into a hole, maybe an empty coal mine. Who can say? I think that that's the sort of thing that might work. And then you have the standoff and President Harding sends in the troops ahead of the battle, and there is a, you know, everyone steps down. That probably does not, you know, instantly unionize Mingo County, but it leaves the United Mine Workers with the moral victory. They've scared Don Chafin, and they haven't spent all of their, you know, strike funds on getting people out of prison after the Battle of Blair Mountain. So that would be sort of the you know, the the closest to the moment. And I feel like leading a bunch of private dicks astray in West Virginia is not outside the skill of maybe not me, but certainly of a few West Virginians to whom I have brought lovely moonshine or with whom I have consumed lovely moonshine. And I feel like we would become as brothers at that point. And uh, then there'd be no shortage of what we could do. Well, uh, people were, were hoping you would get to that point. And so if if we then want to take all of this historical information and, and use the history we have to put it in gaming, uh, of course, the 20s is Call of Cthulhu territory. So yep. uh, you can have other things rising wild in the hills uh, against uh, this as a, a backdrop mm-hmm. uh, with the... Uh, these events uh, interfering with your attempt to uh, deal with Bayaki or uh, whoever else it is. Yep. There's a spawn of Yogg-Sothoth or some Migo under Blair Mountain, and you have to go deal with them. But, oh, there's 2,000 Don Chafin Logan defenders in your way. And uh, from your description of the Logan defenders, it would not surprise me to learn that there are some uh, cultists among them. Uh, so perhaps you may uh, have a beef with some cultists that you're coming to deal with, and you find out, oh, no, they're surrounded by 1950 other people ready to uh, <laughs> attack these these miners and you have to deal with that in uh, in some way another thing you can do of course in either call or trail is have this be the backstory of a character uh, that explains why they are experienced with uh, guns and explosives and uh, hard knuckle tactics uh, and that, why they had to suddenly up stakes and move to Massachusetts <laughs> exactly yes that's why uh, you're not in uh, in Virginia anymore, and that could be your uh, sort of Rick Blaine-style uh, backstory. Uh, just before we go, I do want to note that there is a good film about this story. Uh, it's Matawan from 1987 by John Sayles. 
That's from Sales's great run of uh, 80s indie movies. Uh, and it has uh, David Strathairn as Hatfield and uh, uh, Chris Cooper as the lead in it. And it's uh, uh, quite a good film and, and worth seeing. This is all true. And I think now that we've uh, got to the point where we're recommending movies... And uh, we've told you uh, how to put it in a scenario and you're deciding whether to go back and change history or not. I think that sounds like, uh, Ken, the end of another exciting episode. It does sound culminatory, doesn't it? It does. Uh, So we'll be back next week with more of the similar. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Don't let this podcast go to the way of the tri-line. Join such illustrious backers as... Andrew Dacey. The Volpine. Derek Yates. Taylor Harless. And Gwendolyn Schmidt. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Festoon yourself with our latest design, Foxy Dragon. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.